If you have your Bibles, would you open up to the book of Acts? And we're going to go to chapter 15 today. Acts chapter 15. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to say hello to everyone who is watching online, whether you're watching it live on a Sunday morning or you're viewing this uh, on YouTube sometime later. Thank you for taking time out of your life uh, to, to tune in. And we want you to know that uh, you matter, uh, that it's not just the people that can make it in the room, but you matter online. Uh, we're grateful that you would tune in. We know there's reasons and seasons to be online. And uh, thankful that uh, even though you're in that reason or season that you're tuning in, uh, I was not able to be here the last two weeks. Our family, uh, my wife and three kids, we were five for five, tested positive for COVID, quarantined, did the whole thing, uh, but we're back. But I learned how valuable our online church is and uh, the tech team that puts it all together. We love you. Thank you so, so much. And uh, I'm happy to be back in the building today. Uh, didn't get to preach the last couple of weeks, so here we go. Uh, excited to, to, to join you and be with you in person here today. Um, we are in a series right now called Double Vision. And in essence, uh, we're talking about the vision that God has for his church and for us individually to not let the good news of the gospel to stop with us, but that it would be reproduced in somebody else. That's a uh, double vision means you look out and instead of seeing a single, you see, you see double, that there is more than what you currently see. And uh, our heart as a church is not just that we would double in size of who shows up to this church, but the impact that Anchor makes for the kingdom is always doubling. That we, we look and we just say like, hey, this is cool what God has done in this first year as Anchor Church, but we believe that there are souls that God desperately loves. Uh, there are men and women and children in our community that don't know the hope of Jesus yet, and we do not want to let the gospel stop with us. We want to say thank you, God, for what you have done, but have vision that this continues to grow. And we double if every single person engages in the gospel work, the evangelistic work that he's laid out for us. If we as a community don't just say, hey, no, I go to church, and it's the preachers whose job is to tell people about Jesus. When we all embrace that as followers of Jesus, I have been commissioned to share my faith with others, that our impact, our influence is going to continually double. And uh, it's the passion that we have. Again, uh, if you need to go back and listen to some of the previous messages, the goal is not just how do we get more people a part of Anchor Church. The goal is how do we get the people who call Anchor Church their home, our followers of Jesus, activated in what it means to be a follower and be fishers of men and reproduce in other people. That is the vision God has given us. Our theme verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, that says, because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. That when we understand what God has not just extended grace to us, but afforded us the opportunity and commissioned us to reproduce what he's done in our lives in others, when we understand this responsibility, we will work hard to persuade others. We will do the hard work of building relationships. We'll do the hard work of creating opportunities to, for people to hear the gospel. We will work hard, not just the people who are employed by churches, but followers of Jesus. We will work hard to persuade others. Uh, persuade is, is another uh, way to say a, a churchy word that is evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the news of Jesus, sharing the gospel of Jesus, whether it's through public preaching or personal testimony. And so uh, we will work hard to share the story of the gospel with other people. Uh, evangelism is one church word. Another churchy word is discipleship. 
Discipleship is, is what we call when someone has put their faith in Jesus, walking alongside of them as they grow into maturity, and eventually they begin to share their faith and evangelize as well. So a church that's evangelistic and a church that is discipleship-oriented, they are not at odds with each other. In fact, uh, our mission statement as a church is we exist to see the lost found and the found anchored in the hope of Jesus, which is another way of saying we exist to evangelize and to disciple. That it is both the lost being found. Yes, we want the gospel to get to as many people as possible, but not stop there. We also want to be a church that uh, understands the importance and the value of discipleship, to see the found anchored, stable, in their, their, and mature in their faith in Jesus. That we want to be a church that... Uh, is both, but evangelism is the starting point, the, the, the starting point of discipleship. We, uh, we've laid out three simple ways that you can engage in the commission God's given us to, to reach others. It's pray for, invest in, and invite to. We pray for people, pray for individuals that we know in our lives that uh, have not yet experienced the hope of Jesus. We pray for them. Then we invest in, meaning we invest in relationship. Discipleship is relationship-oriented. You can't disciple from a distance. You can't disciple inconsistently. So you invest in. You invite them over to dinner. You go out to coffee. You have the round of golf. You go to the concert. You, you engage with them personally. You ask them how the doctor's appointment went. You, you connect with the, these people, and you build relationships with them. You invest in relationship. And then you invite them to gospel opportunities which is not isolated to church. Church is an opportunity that is available to you. Uh, but what does it mean to invite people to experience gospel opportunities, to hear the story of Jesus, whether it is public preaching or it's personal witness? We want to be a church that all of us are praying for, investing in, and inviting to. Um, and so today we're going to transition from the understanding the responsibility. We've spent a few weeks uh, communicating that this is the task, this is the call, this is the first and last words of Jesus, where that we would be his ambassadors, that we would go make disciples, that we would follow him and become fishers of men. Uh, so we've worked hard on communicating this, this is our responsibility. Today I wanted to shift a little bit in this series to talk about, well, what is the message? Like, what, what are we communicating? What is the message to those that we are praying? for, investing in, and inviting to. Uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter 15 as our primary text today. Uh, would you bow your heads, pray with me, and uh, we will dig in. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for your word, so grateful that it is alive, it is active, it is powerful. It's not just recording uh, information and stories from 2,000 years ago, but it is it's communicating truths for us here today. Lord, um, Thank you that you know every heart, you know every doubt, every question, you know everyone that's been hurt by church, hurt by religion, yet is, is here today. God, you know those um, who've been following you for some time, and uh, you, I just am so grateful that your word is going to speak to each and every person exactly where we're at today. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would speak uh, individually, but you'd also speak corporately to us as a young church. Um, of who you've called us to be. What does it mean to not let the gospel stop with us and that we would understand our fearful responsibility and we'd understand the message that you want us to share. We love you. So grateful to be in church today. Thank you for a church that is awake and alert and alive and energized. We're ready to go this morning. Tonight we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. 
We are in various different categories of life. Uh, we come to the, the questions of uh, like who's in and who's out, like who qualifies, what is the line of qualification, the line of disqualification. I think oftentimes we, we, we just have to have a, a line of, of who's in, who's out. And sometimes that's a question, am I in or am I out? My, my wife, she's got a, a baking business and she bakes a lot of cupcakes and uh, they're delicious. And uh, she, she, as she's making, she always makes a few extra because um, we want to make sure that the best ones go to the customers. And so it's always wonderful for us as a family when there's a couple of rejects in the batch. Like, oh, you know, the, it doesn't look quite as pretty. You know, maybe we need to put that in the rejects pile. Like, those ones are out because then we get to enjoy them. Uh, but there are so many different areas of life, whether it's when you were a little kid and you had a little club on the playground and everyone had to know the right password to be in the club. Like, we just, it is in our nature to have exclusions of who's in or who's out. I mean, it's, it's applying for a school, a, a university. There are certain standards of who qualifies to be at the school and, and who doesn't. Uh, it shows up when you try out for a sports team. Like, this is the standard. We're going to have those that are in and those that are out. We have this much space. These are the ones that, and if you make the team, then there's like, uh, do we make it to the Hall of Fame? Well, there's only the certain criteria of people who are in that club, and the rest of them are excluded on the outside. Uh, whether it's military or job interviews, essentially when we're writing our resume, we're saying, like, these are the reasons I think that I should make the cut. This is why I'm good enough. And then it's up to somebody else to decide whether you actually are good enough or not. Am I in or am I out. This happens in various different ways. And, and to be honest, in a lot of arenas, you just have to have the line somewhere. Like not everybody can make the team. Not everyone can be hired. Like there has to be some level of criteria of fulfilling these certain positions and these certain roles. Uh, maybe you've got stories of where you made the cut. Doesn't it feel really good? I remember uh, in junior high basketball when I made the A team, it just, like, it just felt like I'm the king of the world. Like I'm probably going pro because uh, my little private school just put me on the A team. Like it was just the best. You feel so good when you know that you are superior to somebody else because that's the criteria is how do you compare to other people? And it feels good when the comparison takes place and you come out on top. You ever been on the other side? Not so much fun. I remember like when I didn't get first, second, or third chair for the saxophone in middle school, uh, and I think there was like only four chairs. Uh, it was like, I was one of those kids like, you know what, at the concert, you don't actually have to you know, blow into the saxophone. You can just, it's just for looks, you know. Uh, it doesn't feel good when the tryouts happen and the line is drawn and you're on the outside. Because that means that there is someone or some group of people that is better than you. You didn't make the cut. But there's consistently in life a line. And am I in or am I out? And how does that make me feel? And it always comes down to comparison of who can do it the best is who's in. Now, in a lot of areas of life, arenas, it, it makes sense. Like, it's, it's not a bad thing. But what about when it comes to our faith? What about when it comes to our, our spirituality, our church, our lives? Like, who is acceptable? Who's in and who's out? This is a question that has uh, not been uncommon in churches and church circles and in places of faith uh, throughout the history of mankind. Like, who gets to be a part of this group? Who gets to be a part of this church, this faith, this religion, this club, whatever we want to label it? Who makes it in and who makes it out? As we look at Acts chapter 15, 
That is very much the question that's being discussed when it comes to faith community, people who are followers of Jesus. Who gets to be a Christian? Who's welcome to the church and who's not? Acts chapter 15 is known as the Council at Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council. This is one of several early church meetings where there was uh, some discrepancies in what the truths of the gospel are, uh, and, and we need to come together and make a unified decision. So we're going to look at this meeting in Acts chapter 15. This is some 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, the church had grown. It had spread out. It wasn't just the local Jewish community. The Gentiles were putting faith in Jesus. Uh, the church is growing all over the known world. And as the church is growing and more and more people are preaching the gospel and telling the story of Jesus, discrepancies started to show up and different pockets of people were teaching different gospels or different connotations to what it means to follow Jesus. And so because some, some differences were out there, this council is called in Jerusalem where all the church leaders come together and say, hey, let's get on the same page about this essential of who's in and who's out. So we're about to walk into a, uh, an argument that there is gonna be a lot of different people who speak up and share what they believe, and at the conclusion of this, there will be a decision of what is, what is the, the answer to the question of who's in and who's out. The church had been wrestling with the questions of participation. Um, and who do, who do we say, or what does it take to be a part of this, 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 this faith? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And what would be required of people to be one of us? So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says, Well, Paul and Barnabas, who are two church leaders, some of the most prominent preachers of the gospel, when they were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So a portion of preachers show up, and they're teaching these new Gentile believers that you cannot be saved if you're not circumcised. Like, this is their sermon. I'm not sure the planning that went into their sermon structure, their sermon series, like, hey, new church, what should our opening series be? It was circumcision. Like, this is their plan. But they are making this statement, those of you that think that you're saved, you've heard the gospel that's been preached to you, we need to let you know, if you're not circumcised, you actually cannot be saved. This is the message that is being preached, that salvation had to look a certain way. And the certain way it needed to show up in your life is the way that it's been for us. The way that I was raised, the way that I grew up, the way that we identified our faith, now that same method needs to be applied to anyone and everyone who wants to be in. Now this is the message that's being preached. This is, this is a problem. Because there's a lot of Gentile people who are putting their faith in Jesus, and they're leaving behind some of their pagan beliefs, but they have not yet transformed their pagan lifestyle. Essentially, they're showing up to church, and they still have some standards of morality, some standards of, of hygiene, some standards of customs and traditions that the Jewish people held to that the Gentiles didn't. That they, they didn't, weren't raised this way. They didn't know these customs and these traditions and, and what it would look like to live to the standard of morality. They had never heard it. And so they're excited about the gospel, but they show up to church and they don't look like, act like, talk like, behave like everybody else. And some people are saying, that's a problem. You, you are on the outside. Until you can start looking like, behaving like us, you're not in. So this is a tension that is, that is arising. Um, 
what do we do when they show up with their own customs, habits, traditions, and many of them are offensive to the way that we've been trying to raise our families? To be honest, this is not a problem from 2,000 years ago alone. This is so much the story that people still feel today. So much of what religion says to people is like, hey, 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 the good news is available, but only if you do it the way that we do it. If you look like us, talk like us, it's got to look like the way that we were raised. You have to live up to our standards. This is a big problem for some people who had been grown, grown up in the church, who had been in, who had lived to these high standards and were comparing themselves amongst themselves and saying like, hey, we're, we're ranked pretty high because of the way that we have lived and you rank pretty low because of the way that you have lived and you got to get past this line in order to be one of us. They're uh, subtly saying, and sometimes not so subtly saying, you don't belong the way that you're currently living. The way that you currently look, the way that your life, like you, you don't belong. If you want to belong, here's the list of rules. And this was their solution. It's like, we're not saying you can never be in, but if you want to be in, here is the rules of what it would take to be a part of this. Now, this would... Uh, this would require some pretty uncomfortable surgery for the males, as well as a list of 600 Old Testament Jewish laws that they were unfamiliar with was now going to be pressed upon them. This is the solution. Uh, if you want to be a part of this church, you want to be a member, here's what you need to do. Uh, we've got our church lunch afterwards, and membership requirements will be explained. It's up in the air if circumcision's on there or not. We'll let you know. It's not, like you can stay for lunch, it's not on there. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, but like, what does it mean to be one of us? This is a really challenging statement if you are on the Gentile side. Hey, you have to follow the laws of Moses, including circumcision, if you want to be in. This was only the beginning of what it would look like to transform everything that they know if they want to be in on the gospel. Verse two says, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. The message is, you have to be circumcised if you want to be saved. Paul and, and Barnabas stand up like, whoa, whoa, hold the phone. Like, what, what are you, this, this is not okay. And not only do they disagree and say, well, we see it differently. They argue vehemently. Like, things are getting heated inside the church. Like, this is a big deal. We just shared the gospel, planted these churches. People are following Jesus. Miracles are happening. The church is growing as Jesus said it would. And you're coming in with a message so entirely different that we're going we're gonna to argue about this for a while. It gets heated, vehement arguing. And so the, we don't know how long this argument lasts, but they make a plan. Okay, we're not coming to the same conclusion. And this is so important that we have to have an answer. Imagine the Gentiles who are listening to this argument. Clearly they're on Paul and Barnabas' side. Like we, we're cheering for you in this thing. But no, no conclusion happens. But the, 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 the answer to this debate, the conclusion they come to, has dramatic ramifications on the rest of the world, on all the Gentile believers. This is a huge deal. So finally, verse two, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. So this is the basis, this is the agenda for the meeting. Let's get everyone from the known world together, all of the church leaders, and please make a decision on this because this decision really matters. Who's in? We really need to know. So 
this is what's going to take place, is the Gentiles in Antioch are going to stay there, new believers, not sure if they're in or out, sending a group of delegates to Jerusalem. Let's let you guys all argue about it. And then you make a decision. Let us know what the solution is. And then come back and tell us. It says so in verse 3, the church sent the delegates to Jerusalem. They stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. The church continues to spread to the Gentiles. So this decision that's about to be, or this, this conversation that's about to be had and the decision that is made, we have to understand the dramatic impact on the Gentiles who are going to be patiently waiting. We don't have a timeline here. But no doubt, this is a significant portion of time for everyone to spread the word that we're going to have this meeting, for everyone to travel to Jerusalem, how long it takes them to discuss and decide. They're going to end up writing a letter with a decision and get it back to the Gentiles. So I don't know how long this takes, but they are sitting there in limbo. Like, we, we love the story of Jesus. We love the gospel, but we're not sure what the answer is going to be on if we're in or if we're out, if, what, what's going to be required of us to be in. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. Meanwhile, it says here in verse 4, while they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and the elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. This is just wild scene. All the church leaders, all the prominent preachers, teachers, leaders get together. They haven't seen each other for some time. They've dispersed among the known world, planting churches and sharing the gospel. They have a reunion. They get back together. It says they begin sharing the amazing things that God is doing. I mean, just imagine Paul going off and like, you wouldn't believe the sizes of, of the crowds coming and putting their faith in Jesus. You wouldn't believe the miracles of healings, the casting out of demons. Like, it is so incredible what God is doing in his church and just celebrating that what Jesus said would happen is happening and that they get to be a part of it just goes off on their story. And then some people have the audacity to stand up like, okay, cool, cool, Paul. It's awesome, the healings, the miracles, salvation, church, and all that. But they have to be circumcised. This is, this is what they do. And then the argument breaks out again. Like, did you not hear what God is doing in the lives of people around the world? And what is more important than celebrating God rescuing his sons and daughters is that they look like you? This is, this is what happens. We can't celebrate because I want it to look like me. We can't celebrate what God is doing because, well, I've worked so hard to live at this moral standard and they can't have access to the grace of God equally to me when I've worked so hard to have this lifestyle. No, 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 like there's got to be a line. So the argument continues. I wanna tell you what is being proposed here to follow the law of Moses for an adult Gentile who had been shaped, whose lifestyle had been predominantly shaped by the Greek and Roman values and traditions, for them to have to adapt to the Jewish values would be virtually impossible. For an adult who'd grown up under these Roman and Greek values, systems, and traditions, to all of a sudden be told, you have to convert completely to our value systems would be virtually impossible. It would take years to even learn the information, let alone start putting it into a lifestyle, putting it into practice. 
Essentially what these Gentiles would be saying to, to, to the people who are preaching to them, you have to follow the law of Moses, their response would have to be, I can't do that. I cannot be like you. I cannot change the way that, that I have been brought up. I can't change the way that I see life and the values that have been instilled in me. Like, I can't just change that. I can't be you. This would be virtually impossible. And can I say that this is how many people feel today walking into churches? Like, I, I can't be like that. I can't, I can't just be the way that you are. I can't like live up to some standard that I don't even know, I don't even understand, I haven't been raised this way. Like my story, what I've walked through, the abuse that I've suffered, the pain, the perspective that I've been, I can't just walk in and say, oh, this is a place that I enjoy and completely transition to be like everybody else. Like that, that's, that's not good news. So many people resist church, resist faith because they are implicitly or explicitly told you're not in, you don't live up to the standard or they're afraid uh, that they're not gonna qualify. Now the reality is, is that you in here, uh, you know you, you, knew, you know your story, you know your faults, your flaws, your failures, you know it all. But it's so easy for someone who has not been here before to walk in and not know you the way you know you, and it feels like, well everyone else has it figured out. Man, look at all these other people, they're raising their hands, they're singing, they know the songs, they know each other. Man, they probably have no sin, no problems, no addictions, their marriages are probably all fine, they've got this all figured out. It could be so easy that it looks like everyone else has it figured out. Now, you know you and I know me, but they don't know you and they don't know me. They can feel on the outside. You can say, I, I don't know if I belong. I don't know if I fit. You know, I've got certain lifestyles, certain struggles, certain behaviors. I got so many questions and doubts and fears and it seems like these guys all just agree with everything going on. Like, I don't feel like I'm in. I want to tell you this is still the challenge today. The people hear from the church, you have to be like us if you're going to be one of us. Sometimes it's implicit. Unfortunately, sometimes it's explicit. That we portray a certain comparison game of who's in and who's out. My question is, what is our message to them? Maybe today you feel that way. It took a lot of courage to, to be here. Maybe some of you are watching online because it's really challenging for you to actually step into a church community. What is the message to you? Those of us that like, we, we feel like we're in, like, oh, this is my church, this is great, I'm a follower of Jesus. What is our message to those that maybe don't feel the same level of acceptance? That's the argument here and the solution we're going to get to. It says in verse 6, so the apostles and the elders, they met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after long discussion, Peter stood and he addressed them as follows. He says, brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith, not by works. He says, like, he made no distinction between us and them. He sees the hearts through faith. Verse 10. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? 
We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. We believe that we were all saved the same way, the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. I love that Peter stands up. He says, you guys, who are we kidding? Let's be honest. We haven't lived up to those laws very well. That's a yoke we never could do. Our parents could never do it. Why are we now going to insist that they live up to a standard that if we were honest, we couldn't do on our own? We never lived that good. Who are we trying to fool here? says, why would we put that on them? It was the grace of God that saved us. And it's the grace of God that is growing and maturing and changing and sanctifying us. Why can't it be the same grace for them? I love his argument. This doesn't say that behavior and all this isn't going to matter, but he's like, what saved us was not how well we followed the law because we didn't do it. We tried. But we couldn't do it. It was the grace of God, and it's the same grace that we extend to them. He's explaining it in the consistency of Scripture, front to back. It tells us the message that the law was there to tell us what the standard of righteousness looks like and make it obvious to us that we can't live it. And what it does is it, it pushes us to seek out a Savior. I, I can't do it. I can't be righteous. I can't be holy. I can't live up to the standard. Therefore, my option is to give up or to seek a Savior who can. And that's the answer of the New Testament. That's the solution of Jesus, is that he came to be the righteousness that you and I could not attain. The law reveals our inability, but it is grace that shows up in our life. And it's always grace first, but grace produces faith. And faith produces a changed life. It changes our behavior. But grace always comes first. And Peter reminds me, hey, hey, let's not get ahead of ourselves and say it's all about the works, the behavior that gets someone saved. No, no, no. It is the grace of God. And absolutely, that grace produces faith, and faith without works is dead. That yes, behavior will change. It will matter. But let's remember, it was always grace. Verse 12, now we have another speaker. Everyone listen as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood up. And he says, brothers, listen to me. Now James, this new speaker, he is the brother of Jesus and the most prominent church leader in Jerusalem, in the local community. And he stands up and he speaks. And he says, Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, and he begins to quote the book of Amos in the Old Testament, after I will return and restore the fallen house of David, I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. All those who have called to be mine, the Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. He says, like, God said this was going to happen. Like, why, why are we resisting it? And then in verse 19, he says, and so my judgment, he gives his two cents here. My judgment is this, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. If you've got your Bible and a pen or a highlighter, that, that line has got to be underlined in your Bible. This is the conclusion. We should not make it difficult for those who are putting their faith in Jesus, those who are coming, those who are hearing the gospel. We should not make it difficult. Why are we making this difficult? The gospel is better than that. It is my conclusion that we should not make it difficult. Instead, we should write to them, and this is what he does think they should be told. They should be told to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, and from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. 
for these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So he gives his opinion. Then between verses 21 and 22, a decision is made. Again, I don't know how long this takes. I don't know how many, how many more speakers there are. But a decision is made, and a letter is written. And say, so, okay, we're going to write this letter, and we're going to send it out back to, to Antioch and the other Gentile communities, and we're going to let them know the conclusion of our debate and what the answer is. So verse 22 says, Then the apostles and the elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem, they chose delegates, and they were sent to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. They chose, the men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabas, and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. So again, this letter is written, and uh, it's going to be presented to the Gentiles. Now, it's not actually read to them until I believe verse 31, but let's jump into this picture jump into this story. This group of delegates makes their way back to Antioch, and in their hand is the decision, and it's going to be read to the community. Imagine as everyone begins to gather around. Again, we don't know how long they've waited, days, weeks, months. They've been waiting to get the answer. Like, what is in that letter, what is written on that scroll has dramatic impact on their lives. So they gather together. Imagine the tension that is building of what they could hear in this letter. What is the message back to them? Everyone's gathered around, and at stake is over 600 rules, including uncomfortable surgery. And if this is what the verdict is, it's going to be impossible. Like, this, they're just, okay, I guess we can't do this. They gather everyone together, and um, here's the content of the letter. It says, this letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It's written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. So this is the, the introduction. Hey, we heard the issue. We've discussed it. We've sent like the right people to confirm like this. This is the accurate answer. This isn't just one person's opinion. This, this is the formal presentation. So verse 28, they get to it. It said, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. So here it comes. The moment they've all been waiting for. Again, there's got to be tension. I see whoever's up there reading the scroll, just having like a little pause, clearing his throat. <clears> throat. We're about to get down to it. Can't you just imagine the families huddled together? The guys, no doubt, like they got sweaty palms that they're rubbing on their little man dresses. Like this is a big moment. What are they going to tell us is required? <laughs> big deal. So here it is, verse 29. They lay it out for him. You must abstain from eating food and offering... Uh, from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. Roll up the scroll. Now, we got to see what just happened. Over 600 laws that they could have come back with, the Jerusalem Council effectively reduced it to essentially two things. 
One of it has to do with their diet, which without taking time today is saying like, hey, this is really offensive to a lot of other believers. It's a freedom that you have, but we're going to say out of love for others, let's just take that off the table right now. So it's just, we're not going to let that be divisive. So dietary stuff that has a lot of tradition involved, like, hey, let's just, let's give up that freedom to love others. And then sexual immorality, which is no small task. But these are the simply what they've boiled it down to. Like, if you're following Jesus, uh, and you're, you're going to, like, these, these, these are kind of essential. Love people more than your freedoms. And uh, we're going to start with dealing with sexual immorality. Like, let's just take that off the table. But that's it. Like, that's farewell. They roll up the scroll. No one in the audience listening to that, those rules, was bummed out. It was not disappointed. Like, oh, are you kidding me? I can't, my meat has to be cooked well done now. Like, no one was bummed. Like, this was the grace of God that had been reduced down to this. Like, this, uh, the guys have got to be like, okay, last time, double check that. That is everything required. Like, th that's it. This is so exciting for the Gentiles. They are celebrating this message. In fact, in verse 31, it talks about all the joy that they have and the celebration that they have, that this is the message that was returned to them. That anyone and everyone could put their faith in Jesus, could receive his grace, and that alone is what makes them in. That they don't have to live up to this massive standard of laws and rules, that it is grace first. They can receive the grace of God by faith and then let God's grace do what God's grace does and work in that individual's life. Say, so, hey, we're going we're gonna to take this from here. This is beautiful. This is the simple gospel. This is the beautiful gospel. I want to tell you the gospel is still this beautiful today. It is still this good news. That when the gospel is presented accurately, no one hears it and be like, ah, that's not that great. No, it is so good. God's grace is so good, so beautiful, so welcoming. But there remains today in our humanity a constant pull back into the direction of earning grace. That, no, there's actually this is what it needs to look like if you want the grace of God. May I remind you, followers of Jesus, that we did not earn the grace of God. And we will not expect others in our community to earn what we didn't earn on our, on our own. Our fearful responsibility is to persuade others to the gospel. But it's to persuade others to a gospel that is this good. When we understand the beauty of the gospel, it's not difficult to persuade someone into good news. What's difficult is when the gospel we present isn't good news. It was difficult to persuade the Gentiles that they had to follow these 600 laws. That wasn't actually good news. That would be difficult to persuade someone. But when the gospel is as simple and amazing and beautiful as it is, it is not difficult. If the message we are sharing, working hard to persuade others, is saying you have to cut this out of your life if you want to be in, you cut it out first, that is not the gospel. It will be difficult to persuade others. But if the gospel is, I couldn't earn it, I couldn't be righteous, I was no good, yet the grace of God was extended to me, and I'm going to say the grace of God is available to you, and you're not expected to earn it, 
You're not expected to achieve it, to look like, to talk like, to think like. No, we're just the gospel is available. And what the gospel does from there is up to him, but you are welcome to the gospel. There's forgiveness. There is hope. There is purpose. There is life abundant and life eternal for you exactly where you're at today. This is not a hard gospel to persuade. This is what we have been commissioned to do. I love that this, um, this decision, it combats both legalism and licentiousness. Two church words again. Legalism is like, most of you know what that is, like you've got to look this way or you're out. It's all about the rules. Licentiousness is the opposite end of the spectrum that says like God's grace is so good, it doesn't matter what you do. Like it's a free for all. I love that this, this wipes both out. It's like legalism, clearly not on the table. But also saying, like, if you're really following Jesus, it's going to start affecting your love and your care and your behavior. And specifically, it's going to start with the way you handle your sexuality. Like, this is up for, like, licentiousness is also off the table. It's saying, no, we look at the gospel, and the gospel does work in your life. The grace comes first, and it does begin to produce. I'm going to ask the band if you'll join me. Our job is to continually look to Jesus and point people to Jesus. To be so caught up in the story of Jesus and how he transforms our lives. That we don't ignore the sin, we don't ignore the problem, but we're consistently pointing to the solution. We're continually saying, like, it's not about you working on fixing that yourself. It's like, we look to Jesus. He is the author, and he's the perfecter of our faith that we keep following him and he does this perfecting work inside of us. Meaning that Anchor Church, corporately and individually, we must be a place that's not just a gathering for people who look like they're righteous, who have a certain set of morality. We must be a gathering of a people in process. Gathering of people all at different stages, having different struggles, having different sins that we're dealing with, but we are all looking to Jesus and saying like, he, he, I can't compare myself to you because it's only the grace of God that's got me where I'm at today. And it's only the grace of God that's going to get me to where he's leading me. And so I'm not here to say who's in, who's out. I'm saying we are together going to come together and look to Jesus, continually look to the gospel and allow room for people to be in process. We must be a place where people are curious, have questions, have doubts, have fears, are welcome to be here. People who are still struggling with who they are, struggling with what they've been brought up in, struggling with, with finding what, what the future is supposed to look like for them. Those, those that are, are struggling today, who maybe don't look like, think like, act like, are they welcome here? This should be a place where those of you that have confidence, have maturity, have understanding, been following Jesus for a while, can, can be in a journey of process side by side with those who still have doubts, fears, and questions. Those who, if we did take the time that's unnecessary to, to rank our morality amongst ourselves, maybe we're on different ends of the spectrum, but we are welcome together to sit side by side and worship a God who's worthy because it's his grace that changed me. And rather than looking down on you, I'm going to celebrate the grace of God that's available to you right where you're at. It's going to grow and mature and change you. We'll allow space for people to be lost and see the lost found and allow space for the found to grow into being anchored. We are going to allow space. We'll work hard 
to persuade others. And some of the hard work is not judging others, not looking down on. Some of the hard work is going to be loving and having conversations, inviting people into your house that you normally wouldn't hang out with, but you are working hard to break down any barrier that keeps them away from recognizing how loving and welcoming the gospel is. To the believer, we should not make it difficult. We should make it easy. We should be praying for those who are coming to the gospel. We should be investing in relationship. We should be inviting them to gospel opportunities. Anything that would prevent them from knowing and experiencing the gospel, we work hard to, to not make it difficult. For some of us, a really practical example is breaking down any discomfort. When someone shows up in this building, in this space for the first time, it takes courage. It's uncomfortable. Will I fit in? Am I accepted? Will I feel like I can be a part of this journey along with these other people? Did you know that you having a conversation, looking someone in the eye, hearing their name, repeating their name back to them, this is breaking down things that are difficult for people to hear and receive and listen. You are a carrier of the gospel, and you are making it easier when you say, hey, you are worth my, my icon. You are worth hearing your name. You are worth making sure that someone is sitting next to you. Like, these are important moments where you can work hard to persuade others, to say you, you're welcome in this building. Because every week, I mean, every single week, we are seeing more and more faces show up. I don't know where people are hearing about us, but they are coming. And every week we have opportunities to say, you matter. I don't know your story, but you're welcome to this journey with us. And every week there's opportunities to just go find the people we know, sit in the seat we always sit in, enjoy the service, and leave without letting someone know that you're welcome here. Every time someone shows up, there's those questions of, is this the place for me? You carry the gospel. You work hard to make it easy, not difficult. For those God is drawing to himself. We're not a church that just shows up and consumes. We're a church with a vision to see the lost found and the found anchor. And I'm praying that God gives us double vision, that every time we show up, man, there's someone here that I can let them know that they're loved, that God is for them, that God is with them. To the unbeliever who's here with us today, the gospel is good news. It's not bad news. It's really good. And it is for you today. And certainly the gospel will result in change. It will impact your behavior, but not to be earned. I want to tell you, those of you that have your questions, your concerns, you don't feel like, look like, act like us, I want to tell you right now, you are welcome here. You are welcome to the journey. You are welcome to the process of following Jesus and letting the gospel do what it does. You're welcome here. If you're willing and able, would you stand with me? see a lot of you getting coats on. I'm sorry it's so chilly out there. We'll work on getting the AC changed next week. I'm plenty warm up here, so I'm good. Apologize that it's so chilly in here. We have just a couple more moments where the band's going to lead us in a song. We're going to dismiss and we're going to transition to church lunch. But in these last few moments we have together, um, we're going to provide an opportunity to take communion. There's a table uh, with a basket of communion elements on both sides uh, of the room here. 
Those of you that are at home, if you want to take a minute to find something that you can eat and drink, uh, feel free. But communion, in its simplest sense, is you are physically taking an action step of saying, I, I receive the gift of Jesus. His body was broken for our healing. His blood was poured out for our forgiveness. And it's one of the most tangible physical actions we can take to say, I, I receive that, not just intellectually, but I receive it. I take action. I'm internalizing that, yes, I receive the gift of Jesus. My faith is not in my behavior. My faith is not in my works, my ability to be good enough. My faith is in the grace of Jesus that he was poured out for me. So today, as we take communion, some of you, this may be the very first time that you take communion with that intention. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the journey. For some of you who've taken communion, been following Jesus, you've done this a lot. Today is a reminder that um, it's his grace. And are there certain morality levels that God's taken to? Awesome. Praise God. That's his grace too. We're not here to look down on anybody else, but to remind ourselves, God, it's, it's your grace and I receive it again. So as the band plays this last song, we'll dismiss in just a few moments. Uh, would you just make your way out of your seats, grab a communion element, take it as you desire over the, the next couple of minutes. There's also some cards there that say, I have decided. If today you've decided to put your faith in Jesus, we don't want to leave you hanging. We'd love to contact you, follow up with you, uh, be able to not just evangelize, but to the disciple. Lord, we love you. You are so good. Your gospel is so good. And we receive the gift of grace today. Some for the first time, some this is the thousandth reminder of your grace. But Lord, you are the hero. You are our Savior. We look to you. In your name we pray. Amen.